Welcome to Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Venice, and every week I sit down for a 40-minute conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes him curious. On today's episode, I'm joined by philosopher and writer Ava Mayer, where I ask her, can animals understand us? Welcome to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness. I am so excited for our episode this week. I mean, I'm always excited for an episode, but this one is especially special. So I'm not going to beat around the bush too much. I want to welcome our guest. Um, but Ava, I'm going to introduce you a little bit uh, so that people understand your prowess. So Ava Mayer is an artist. You're a writer, a philosopher, a singer, songwriter, and you're also the author of 10 books of short stories, novels, and poetry. And your work has been translated into, count them, 18 languages. You don't literally have to count them. Um, but what we're going to talk about today is one of your books, uh, which is all about animal communication that have just been released for the first time in English by MIT Press Genius called Animal Languages. And when I read about that, I was like, we got to have Ava on. We got to learn about animal communication and just fascinated. So welcome and thank you so much for all of your work. Thank you. I'm very glad to be here today. So I remember when I was a little kid and my stepdad said to me one time about our two dogs whose name were Jenny and Whitney. He was like, well, you know, animals can't think because they don't have language and for the first time in my life, I remember thinking, like, what are words? And, like, what is language? Because I'm thinking that that's weird right now as you're telling me that. But if, you know, if, if I'm scratching Jenny or Whitney, which were our dogs, and they think, oh, that feels nice, and they want more pets, and they, you know, nuzzle, you know, your hand, like, with their head, like, what makes them think that they want more pets if they don't? have words. And so I was like, what's going on in their brains if they don't have words? I don't I don't necessarily believe it. So what is what is going on in dogs and cats' brains? And then we're gonna get to everybody's languages, but like <laughs> how do you think if you don't have like a language that we understand as a language? Yeah, that's a very good question. And I think that a lot of people are in the position that you describe. So on the one hand, they think that non-human animals or more than human animals um, uh, cannot think because they cannot speak. But on the other hand, they feel that they can communicate with them in many ways. And that sort of puzzles them. And um, I think that we're in a really interesting time right now when it comes to uh, animal science, because there's this strange thing with animal scientists that is maybe not very strange, but they um, tend to only research the things that they think that are there. So uh, for a very long time, they thought that animals didn't speak, so they didn't have language. And they were interested in perhaps in how their um, modes of communication could help shed light on uh, human language. So, for example, chimpanzees and uh, parrots and dolphins were studied uh, and they were trying to teach them uh, to speak in human words. And this was basically not to get a grasp on their languages, but it was to better understand human language, to figure out whether human language is a product of nature or culture. But in mm. this time, um, the ideas about animal minds and also their, their inner lives in, in, in broader ways, animal cultures, animal languages, uh, animal emotions, 
um, the ideas about these are really changing. And um, uh, scientists are now studying their language as language. And that is teaching us uh, a lot about um, what they think, um, how they express themselves, how they perceive us, because there are a lot of animals that speak about us. Uh, humans. I mean, us is also difficult, right? Because us, I mean, who is us? Us is me and my dogs and my 10x lab mice, you know, that's my us. But then when I, I, I tend to sometimes say us when I speak about humans. So no, animals speak about humans, prairie dogs do that. And um, uh, they, for example, describe humans in detail when they walk onto their territory and they tell each other that it's a human being, how tall they are. Wait, 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 wait. Where do you live? Where are you right now? I live in the Netherlands. Yes. And you were born and raised there? Yes. Did you all have the Golden Girls on TV? We did. Yes. In the, uh, in at least in the 90s. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Great time. So, uh, remember Sophia when she would say picture it, but however you say that translated into Dutch. Um, where are the prairie dogs? How are they talking about us? Where do they live? What does it look like? I feel like they live in tunnels, right? Don't they dig tunnels? Yeah, they're a species of uh, ground squirrel. So they live under the ground ah! uh, and they and they stay in the in the same tunnel system uh, for their whole life. So it's ah! like humans who, who live in a small time, town and never uh, never leave that. And they have different rooms. Um, where they, they have different rooms? They, they have different rooms. What do they do? <laughs> How big are the rooms? They do all kinds of stuff in their rooms. They have babies, so they probably also have rooms for having sex, but also for playing. There's just, there's different rooms. Anyway, because they always stay in the same tunnel system, um, they uh, are very easy prey for predators because they do need, need to go up to eat. I know that you're like an expert in like a jillion animals, but my brain is ravenous for details. How far down in the ground are these tunnels? How big are the rooms? Do you know how big the rooms are? <laughs> I don't know how big the rooms are. We got to have a prairie you- dog episode. You have completely <laughs> got me obsessed with prairie dogs. But then you have to you have to invite Konslobodzikov because he's a scientist and he studied these pra- prairie dogs for 25 years. And he thought, well, um, let's see what they are um, uh, communicating about. Because in the beginning, he didn't really see it as uh, language. And they communicate in, in a sort of small, it's a bit like guinea pigs. Yeah. Uh, but you can, <laughs> and, um, uh, and it all sounds the same to us, right? You know, we can't really differentiate between one sound or another sound, but he he was just um, uh, filming them and recording the audio and um they were doing all these tests. So people would walk in with yellow t-shirts and then blue t-shirts. And then they found out, oh, they're speaking about the color of their t-shirt. People would walk onto their territory with uh, carrying something, you know, like an umbrella. And they were talking about that umbrella. When a dog came onto their territory, they were like, oh, that's a dog. And they knew uh, whether or not it was a dog that they uh, knew about or uh, an unfamiliar dog and so on and so on. And they also... um uh, did an experiment with uh, strange oval things coming from the sky, from cardboard or something, I don't know. And they also made up new words for these um, uh, these, these unknown predators. They also do a kind of wave where they jump up uh, and it's called the jump yip and they say yip. And they sort of, <laughs> they really do it as a wave. And they do that when a snake leaves their uh, territory or something. Oh. So the thing is... 
Yeah, so they have these really elaborate alarm bells. And they also, for example, have a form of social chatter, but we don't know what they are talking about because the research hasn't advanced uh, that well. But the interesting thing is that um, it's it's not that this language of these prairie dogs is so um, uh, complex but that, or that it's so unique, but that it's um, well studied because uh, for most animal species, we know very little. Um, uh, for example, when um, uh, people always think that humans are the only beings who use names, but it turns out that many other animals also have names. For example, dolphins have names, uh, parrots have names, uh, parrots also speak in dialect, so they have like different dialects and sometimes uh, um, can speak both. Uh, bats have names, bats like to argue or they maybe they don't like it, but they do it a lot. And then when one of the bats flies away, you can uh, hear the other bats discussing that bad for a long time so they like to uh, gossip but how do we know that how do you know that about the bats like because there's just like a bunch in a lab and then they like like no it's not actually in a lab and i think that that's something else that's uh changing in uh the study of animal languages and animal cultures i think that scientists are becoming increasingly aware of the fact that when you study animals in labs that's going to make a huge difference um on how they can express themselves and uh also it's going to distort your image of uh things like language because what are they going to say you know when you're scared uh, imagine you're a bird and they put you in a cage without your social group or something then you're just sitting there you know you can't do what you always do there are studies about pigeons that show that they are actually much more intelligent when they're studied um, in their own social uh, circle and uh, doing the things that they always do in their life than when you take them out of that and 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 put them in a laboratory um, or something um so, so there are many um, scientists who study one aspect of the language of one uh, animal. I was speaking about names. Uh, chickens, for example, uh, uh, name their humans. So when they live with different humans, they give them names. Um, because I was speaking about animals who speak about humans. <laughs> uh, and uh, there was this article uh, in The Guardian a couple of days ago about whales in the 19th century who were also already speaking about humans. So they've been doing that for uh, for centuries. They were discussing uh, attacks. So um, when, the, when there were, were these whale hunts, they would tell each other about that and uh, leave uh, these places. So... Um, in terms of um, animal languages, it's a very exciting time, but there's a lot that we don't know yet. And the things that I discussed so far are mostly um, uh, uh, like alarm calls are, are, they sort of resemble human language, you know, they're in, they're using sounds and um, some animals also can speak in human language. But of course, animal lang language is much broader than that. It may include um, colors. The Caribbean reef squid, for example, communicate with light patterns on their uh, skin. And when they see someone they like, they, they might flirt with them on one side of their body. And then when another <laughs> squid comes that wants to maybe also flirt with that other squid, then they can say back off. So they can speak to two people uh, at once. But the funny thing is that... Um, uh, scientists were completely unable to figure out what they were doing with these colors um, until they uh, uh, decided to study it as a language. And then it turned out that these, these fast changing color patterns on the sides of the squid 
uh, had a kind of grammar and verbs and nouns and all of these things. And now they're sort of figuring out what they're saying. So there's color, but then there's also scents. You know, many uh, insects communicate with scents and have very complex ways of doing that. There's um, bodily movements. People know uh, often know that bees dance to uh, uh, speak each other. We learned about this on an episode with How Can We Be Less Rude to Bees? And we learned that when bees are looking for their, like, pollen, they can literally come back and say, okay, you're going to go, like, up two miles and make a right. And, like, with how they, like, fly and, like, flex their little butt with the stingers in it, like, that tells us. And then that's why they're kind of struggling with, like, the bees where they transport all over the place because, like, they get disoriented and then they can't really tell each other, like, where to go because they're all, like, jumbled around and confused. That's true. And the thing is that they only, they don't just speak to each other about where the location is, but they also discuss these locations uh, because some locations are better than others. So the scouts go out and then with the, the intensity of their, their dance, they tell the others, this is a really good place. And then the other one says, well, this one is moi. <laughs> and then the other one says, but this is even better. And sometimes they go back, then they send others to these places and they go back and they can say like, oh, well, no, it's amazing. We need to go. If like three scouts come back at once, can like four or five bees have a conversation like around, you know, the table, so to speak? Or is it more like one on one? No, they speak in a group. There's even some scientists that say that it's a very good model for democracy because it's really fair in a sense. And um, and they, they just discuss it until they reached uh, an agreement. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> Obsessed. OK, so there's. Bees. Okay, because oh, you know what? One other thing I just thought of that's kind of like rude is like, but I think like it's a bit like superiority complex, a bit like selfish. Like just what I heard you saying about like how we only really historically studied animals' language to better understand our own, and there's been this like kind of consistent, at least in my life, I noticed like a consistent um, effort to differentiate like human animals like as better than or superior to non-human animals. Um, and so I just noticed that. And this is just so fascinating to hear about the complexity of languages within animals. So we've heard a little bit about prairie dogs. We've heard a little bit about bees. What about like snakes? Like, I don't really like snakes. I'm really scared of them. Like, are they going to fucking bite me? Like, what do they say? Do they talk shit about people? Are they like, I'm going to go fucking bite her ass? <laughs> or like, what do they say? Well, about biting someone's ass, we do know that uh, African bees, they're a specific kind of bees. They do actually, when one of them gets attacked, they will call all the others and they can kill people. And they do actually, people die from that. So beware of, of making the African bee mad. Um, your question about snakes, um, I don't know if if they communicate about these things. I think we don't know. I don't think it has been um, uh, studied yet. So they they of course have ways of communication. They use um, uh, pheromones, but also mm-hmm. bodily movements and touch. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I mean, all of us animals use pheromones, of the, of course, but or most. I don't even know if that's all. Um, but. Um, so, so yes, they, they are not like these kind of things that move or something. They do, um, uh, they do perceive and, uh, and interact, but I don't know how they, uh, how they communicate with one another about human beings. 
can you tell us about like parental child communication that's interesting in the animal kingdom? I was learning about dog behavior with our dog trainer and she was saying how like when you try to force human language and human understanding on a dog, that's where we a lot of times get into trouble. Cause like, you know, you'd be like, Oh, you're so cute. I love you, dog. Bah, 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 bah. But dogs don't understand the English. And so to them, it sounds like. Let's begin with the dog because dogs do understand English. It turns out. So uh, there's a, there's a dog family lab in Hungary and they're studying dog human relations. Uh, they're doing uh, uh, scans of the dog brains and then saying stuff and it turns out if you're using words um that don't match uh with the tone of your voice they think huh so they listen to both the tone of your voice um and the words and there are of course also dogs that um are taught a lot of words but then that's a kind of different way of of dealing with words you know but also just in the in the kind of regular communication they pick up a lot more um than we think and people are studying that now but of course if you are um treating your dog like a mini human or like a furry baby and it's also weird because americans always say baby and child to to dogs we don't do that in the in the netherlands we don't kind of have this hierarchy family hierarchy in the dog human uh, relations but of course if you pretend that they're humans then you're going to go wrong. Um, but that's because dogs have their dog way of perceiving the world. So we mostly use our eyes and dogs mostly use their nose. So that's a different, uh, a different entry point into understanding the world. And it turns out that, that the, the, the sense that dogs smell have a kind of grammar. So, uh, they, they, and they can, um, also when they smell soup, they can, can smell the different ingredients in the soup or we just smell soup. Um, and when they smell the pee of another dog, they, they can smell all kinds of information uh, about their identity. Is this a, uh, a tall dog that also has to do, of course, with where it is? And, um, uh, is, is, are they old? Is it a male or female or something else? I don't know. So it's, it's a kind of, um, uh, it's, it's, um, dogs have, have, have a different way of meeting the world, but that doesn't mean that we cannot meet each other because there's also dogs and humans, um, uh, domesticated each other. Some people say that humans domesticated dogs. Other people say that dogs domesticated humans. Some people say, even say that humans began to use language in relation to dogs, but that's very contested. So um, I'm not saying that I believe that, but it's an interesting uh, idea. Uh, There's a dog. <laughs> who's he a, agrees. Hey, Oli, <laughs> come um, So, um, uh, so the thing is that, um, uh, that, that there are many ways in which we understand each other. So even, uh, humans who don't live with dogs, uh, can, uh, understand when they listen to, um, uh, uh, to tape recordings of their uh, growls, they can understand whether it's it's kind of a play growl or an angry growl or uh, or something. And it's even the case that when dogs and humans who uh, like each other, uh, when they look into into one another's eyes, they both create oxytocin, which is known as the cuddle hormone. <laughs> Ava, my dog trainer told me that that my dog or that dogs don't fucking like it when you look in their eyes. She said that it gives them anxiety and to ignore him. So you say that's not true. 
Well, it depends on the relationship. I mean, you're not going to look at them like this all the time, you know, and then they'll feel threatened. And also, um, come here, Oli. Come. Come cuddle, also, Oli. <laughs> no, he, he just wants to be part of our uh, conversation. Um, but um, uh, my, my other dog doesn't like it when strangers look into her eyes, for example. But there are different ways. I mean, when you have a relationship with someone, you do communicate with the eyes, right? And it's also with human beings. It's a bit weird if you go into the supermarket and you're like this. Yes. Uh, but it, with someone that you're romantically involved with, with, it can be a very nice thing, you know? So it's it's um, it's not the same, but it's similar. Um, but um, we were speaking about... Uh, parent-child relationships. And the thing is, and that's something that's uh, very important, we always think that there's kind of um, uh, an opposition. So on the one hand, there's the humans, and on the other hand, there's the animals. Um, But humans are also animals. And this broad category of animals is comprised of a very tiny creatures that we cannot even see and um, uh, beings who spend their whole lives in the sea. And, you know, there's so many different um, uh, kinds of animals. So there are some uh, non-human animals who are very good parents, better than humans. And of course, in humans, there's also a wide variation of cultural practices and individual differences. But there are also um, these non-human animals that don't care or cannot afford to care or, you know, because it all it all depends on their circumstances. So there's not really one answer I can give to that. Um, uh, But there is um, uh, there's this um, research lab in uh, Vienna, the the Messerly lab, and they are um, uh, Record, they are doing research uh, about animal morality. There's also this uh, philosopher, Kristen Andrews, who writes about uh, animal morality and normative uh, practices. And I think that humans often sort of feel like similar to how they think that they have the best language. They also feel like they have the best morals. But um, in fact, <laughs> we're not doing that great, you know, because we're very immoral as well. And many other animals have uh, types of normative practices. They they care for each other, but also in a negative sense. So they get jealous or they, they bully others. So, um, and it's not the same. It's never completely the same. Uh, uh, the, uh, dog social lives are, are different from human social lives, are different from pigeons social lives. But there are um, uh, similarities and through studying these, we get a better grasp on what they are doing and how to better uh, share the world with them, but also on all of these concepts. And basically, that's where my interest lies, because I'm not an animal scientist. I just read all of these studies because I, I'm a philosopher. I read all of these studies about animal languages, and I thought, why is nobody writing about this because if you read one you read them in the uh, on on websites and in the science section of the newspaper and you think oh that's amazing this animal can do this and then you turn the page and you sort of forget but if you 
collect all of these um, different stories about animals speaking about their own lives, about the world, about human beings, uh, about their emotions. Apparently cows speak a lot about their emotions when they're standing on the field together. Um, when you see all of that, then it changes your vision uh, of the world and also our position as humans in the world. And I think we really need to do that because of the state of the world that we're in, you know, with the climate crisis, the Corona pandemic, all of these things are related to our relation to nature, to the bigger whole, to the other animals. Um, but it's also simply very um, uh, enriching. It's, it's just people are often scared of difference and, and, and they feel like that what is different from you is somehow worthless or it's um uh it's it's less interesting but i think it actually all, learning about all of these animals um <laughs> the, the minds languages uh, uh social communities is is definitely it's it's wonderful because you walk out and you think oh the pigeons are uh, doing that and that and that and you know it's it's um it makes the world a much more living uh and inviting place but it also makes things harder, of course, because you are become more attuned to the harm that we do to other animals, because that was one of the things that I was thinking about as well. When you spoke about parental relations, I visited uh, a cow sanctuary uh, yesterday with someone who is studying uh, greetings between cows and humans. And she was doing that at uh, dairy farms. But there, the cows, they don't grow very old. Actually, they don't uh, grow past puberty because then they are already uh, sent to slaughter. They're not with their children. Um, they're basically in a sort of monotonous um, uh, environment and they, they can't really, they don't have a lot to talk about. So they do greet each other, but that's basically it. And then we went to the cow sanctuary where they live in a group, stay together. They sometimes have friendships that last for 20 years. Um, uh, sometimes uh, mothers and children stay together for a very long time. So it's a completely different um, uh, situation. And maybe if people think about cows and, and uh, how they, and what kind of parents they are, then they think about these industrial situations, but that actually um, distorts what they are capable of. So it's, um, uh, uh, that's also something that animal scientists are becoming more aware of how the conditions that, uh, animals live under influence, uh, the studies. Yeah, I definitely think that that's part of, like, I mean, also, just to clarify, like, I'm definitely someone who, like, I absolutely eat meat. Like, I had a fucking, like, chicken taco last night. I was also a militant vegan for, like, four years, from 22 to 26. And then I, like, walked past this sign for, like, steamed garlic butter clams. And that was all she wrote. And then I've been spiritually bypassing ever since. Um, because it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good to think about... Murder. It doesn't feel good to think about, like, taking someone else's life away. And I think that the way that people oftentimes spiritually bypass that conversation, myself included, is this sort of feeling of superiority or, like, a non-human life isn't the same as a human life. Um, you know, those sorts of things. And uh, so— 
that is definitely something that's really important to think about. Um, but and I think the other thing that people kind of spiritually bypass, or at least the way I think about it, is like it, it, like what's going on in there. So if you don't conceive of language, if you don't have the language that you know we understand and communicate in, and you were saying how like cows greet differently, so. Or, or dogs with humans, like, what does it sound like in their head? Like, when they're talking and communicating, like, what do you think it sounds like between their ears? So, a lot of times, people are not skeptical about the minds of other human beings. So, they kind of, I, I kind of enter this conversation with you, um, without a doubt that you are uh, a, a thinking human being. You're in a computer right now, but <laughs> I still sort of feel like you are real. Um, but then many humans kind of become, suddenly become very skeptical when it's, um, uh, when the, uh, the, the subject turns to animal minds and, um, that's partly related to the fact that they do not speak in human language. But as we know, language can also deceive. You can lie to me about yourself. Um, uh, language can also lead to misunderstandings, uh, human language. And as we spoke about before, language is more than words. You know, there's a lot of um, uh, what, what we often call body language involved in our uh, communications with each other as well. But the basic thing seems to be, and um, uh, that is called um, uh, speciesism, a form of discrimination that sort of excludes all the other animals beforehand, be simply because they are animals. And I think that um, there are many, many, many differences uh, in when you look at the group humans, uh, there are very many cultural differences also when it comes to language and um, uh, there are sign languages and there are uh, drum languages and there are oral cultures and uh, uh, many other things. There's also, I mean, there used to be this book, um, Women Come From Mars and Men From Venus or the other way around, mm -hmm. you know, so um, uh, humans also think uh, in these terms about gender differences sometimes um, and, and all of these other differences, right? And oftentimes when humans understand that, okay, humans are sort of, they should all have rights and they're because we are humans, you know, but then you sort of repeat the, 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 the violence or the problem, uh, on another level, because then you, you, you create this hierarchy between humans and other animals. And we know that there are non-human primates that are very, very like us. And there are other animals who are very, very different from us. So the, um, um, I, I guess my point is that uh, there are things going on in their minds and um, sometimes we're pretty sure. Um, for example, imagine you are living with a dog and a human being and you sort of know when the dog looks like that, that they're not so happy with that. And you know how they express themselves when they want to eat. And with your human partner, it's kind of similar, you know, you feel they might, they might smile, but you know that, you know, it's not completely right. There's something wrong. You need to do something about this. They might say they feel fine, but you know that they're not really. And then at other times you're like, no, this is fine. It's, it, we're completely in tune or something. And that's because you've learned to, uh, to read them and live with them. And, um, I suppose that you can, uh, also, 
that 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 might function as a metaphor for um, uh, communities as well. So like cultural communities, you sort of know the animals that you live with. If you uh, live outside of the city and you're close to a uh, deers or something, they might walk around your house. You, you get to know them. So we have all of this folk knowledge, um, about the animals and we sort of know what they do and what, to, what they want. And then we have this, um, uh, animal science that helps us with some things. Sometimes animal science is also problematic because it can be colonial in nature. It can be a form of, um, uh, gaining more power about animal communities, but it can also be, um, a form of taking responsibility because our lives are intertwined with all of these animals and we need to, many of these relations are violent and more, getting more knowledge about them and creating a different body of knowledge about animals can also help make these relations less violent. So, um, and then, yeah, what's going on in their mind? Sometimes we know, sometimes we don't. Some things we might really know and sometimes we might never know. But then, so I, I write as a, I'm an academic philosopher. I write for a, um, a broader audience and I also write novels. And that's also different ways of, um, uh, speaking about things. Music is another way of speaking about things. You can make someone feel something, uh, when you sing for them or play music for them. And, uh, and we, and you can know something about the world when you listen to some, a, a certain kind of music. You know what I mean? So there's yeah. different ways of, um, Merlot Ponty calls that singing the world and different perspectives, different kinds of knowledges, and they don't end with the species line. Um, there's people who, who hunt together with dolphins. Um, there's people, you know, there, there are so many ways of, or birds. Um, uh, there are really many, many ways of getting to know each other. But I do think that this all begins with an attitude of, um, uh, but expecting them to be able to say something, you know, because if you are, um, if you're not listening or thinking, well, you know, I'm a human, I don't care or whatever your position is, then you're not going to be able to hear it or see it. But that's of course goes for a lot of things. If you don't look around you, then you miss a lot of what's going on in the world. Mm. So, I, I wrote down, you know, like emotions and language, and it seems like language is how we convey what is going on on our inside or, you know, or it's how we're communicating. So my dog, Pablo is his name. I go pet his ear. He wants me to pet his ear more because he like nuzzles, you know, he like bats my hand with his or my hand with his head. So he's like, you know, keep petting me. Yeah. Is there a way or has anyone ever tried to like see what that sounds like or hear what that sounds like in there. And I understand there's like sign language. And I, under, I also understand that there's like people who don't like they're, you know, they're the eardrum. It doesn't perceive noise. Like they don't, you know, they have, they're having issues with hearing, so they can't. So I understand there's like an ableist conversation here as well. Um, but I think really, I'm just literally curious, my cat, my dog, any like what would it sound like in there like could we ever like put a little electrode on there and like see what it sounds like like has anyone ever done that 
But, but when you think, do you think like you speak with your own voice in your mind? Kinda. I think so. Or it's because like I get a I, I, feeling and then I react to my feeling. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's kind of, I think it's probably quite similar. So sometimes there's the feeling and reacting to the feeling. I want that. And then you, you do it, you know, um, uh, there's also being habituated to different types of situations. So I always do this. So I just do it, you know, and the interesting thing we spoke about morality before is that people often think morality, oh, you need to make all of these puzzles. This is right. This is wrong. This is maybe right. And then make like a calculation. But a lot of morality is actually learned behavior. It's, it's an impulse. You know, you see a child drowning, you jump in before you think about it or a dog or, um, and I think that sometimes, um, and that's also the thing um, um, about dogs and language, there's this dog called Stella and her human is a linguist and she's teaching her to use um, these, these buttons that um, uh, uh, make words. So for example, play or uh, Stella can press the button and then you hear play and they have very elaborate um, uh conversation she has an instagram uh, page and i think that's kind of more like what you are saying right um you think pet me or something that that would be the the, the sound in 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 their heads but um uh but i think that you know because you you already know what is going on in the mind of your dog because you are responding to what your dog is is asking you know you have a dialogue in that sense in it's a very um, small and compact dialogue about uh, touch and touch is also uh, a word and so right? yeah because like maybe <laughs> yeah. in maybe in his head it's just more of like a feeling he's like mm, like mm, yeah like i want more it's like i'll just yeah yeah and then like when he's <laughs> over it he's like he just fucking runs away because he doesn't want me to pet him anymore or he'll like lift up one paw and like kind of sometimes he does this thing with his mouth where i'm like oh i'm not touching you anymore because i can just he's like he gets kind of pissed yeah, but it also, because maybe it begins like a feeling, but when you don't respond, he'll probably be like, hey, but I want this, you know, and then he'll say something to you, like do the nose thing. Uh-huh. And then, <laughs> and then you'll be like, yes or no. So you, it, it really is this answer, uh, response that, uh, thing. You know what it kind of reminds me of this time when I was in rehab, when this really fierce, um, old man who was an alcoholic said, not knowing why I'm an alcoholic is not what made me crazy. Needing to know why I was an alcoholic is what made me, because he was like, why me? Why can't I quit? Why can't I? It was like that need to know. And I think that's part of like the human condition is like wanting to put a human understanding on something that's different, um, where it just, why do I need to know that? I don't need to know what's going on in his little baby head. It's a cute little head. I know he's got needs. I, and, and we already are communicating, which is kind of what you're saying, which is, Really interesting. Yeah, but it's, it, that's part, I, I, I think that part of what you say is true. We don't need to know everything, but you also mentioned before the dangers of anthropomorphism. So, so humanizing the dog and that can be a danger. So you, you can't completely let it slip. That's like saying, Oh, um, about a group of humans. Oh, these, these types of humans always want that, you know, so you do need still uh, to still pay attention to that specific, uh, being. Um, but it sounds like you have a good, uh, understanding with the two of you. And also one thing about, um, uh, the humans need to understand themselves. 
Um, uh, I, for example, wrote a book about depression, um, uh, also um, a philosophical book, but also dealing with my own experiences. It's called The, Li the Limits of My Language. And one of the things that I found is that, of course, it's it's important to understand yourself and to deal with things that happen to you if they come back to you and haunt you. And talking to others can be a way of um, um, describing your identity to yourself in a new way so that you see it in a new light. So words and conversation and therapy can really help. But it's ultimately also... Um, a matter of creating the habits that keep you going. It's that the embodied physical stuff and, or at least that's how it works for me. Maybe it works different for other people. So I do think that for us, indeed, um, the, the non-linguistic practices also make up a large part of our lives. And we, um, uh, being attentive to that is, uh, uh, is, 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 is important. I think that's also why people do yoga, for example. Uh, you know, it, it makes them um, connect to their body and the world in a different way. So another thing that just came to my mind is there was a story a year or two ago about like this goat that was delivered to like a tiger enclosure at a zoo for the tiger theoretically to like eat but then they became friends and like they were just like playing together and like you know like the tiger just like didn't want to eat the goat and I don't know if it eventually turned on the goat and then like did eat it but what do we know about like inter-animal communication and uh, and I guess when I was thinking about morality it's like do we ever see like a like and and that's kind of why that came to my mind. It's like, is there ever a tiger or like a snake where they like their impulse is like, well, I'm gonna go eat that mouse or I'm gonna go eat that goat. But then like the little goat does something cute or the mouse does something cute where the tiger's like, oh my god, are we friends? And then like they become friends. I think there's a lot of friendships uh, that have been. Uh, documented uh, quite well. I mean, that's also uh, people, humans like to look at videos of animals who become friends with other animals, especially when they're from very different species. Um, and yes, there are these friendships and they can have, uh, I mean, animals who are lonely will want friends as well. So especially in zoos, you know, you can imagine that you are really needing a friend when you are in that enclosure all day. And then suddenly there's another being and you're like, wow, you know, this is someone else and we can do it together now. And um, I, uh, and there's also, of course, friendships between humans and other animals and, but, but they, um, uh, they communicate with one another in, in many other ways. There are animals who imitate the alarm calls of other animals to scare them away and eat their food. You know, some are very good and can imitate many <laughs> alarm calls. <laughs> very lucky uh, with uh, with food. And um, in terms of uh, morality, what might also be important to mention is that we often understand these things as... Um, something that you're born with or not, and also, again, belonging to species. But I heard uh, a very interesting, um, uh, um, somebody told me about uh, a study about crocodiles and um, uh, a crocodile-human relations in different villages that were uh, close to one another uh, in uh, a, a part of Indonesia. And um, uh, in many places, 
there were conflicts between the humans and the crocodiles. But in one of these towns, the crocodiles were holy, so they couldn't be killed. In the other towns, they were also protected. But then when they posed a danger, they would sometimes be killed. And in the town where the crocodiles were holy, um, there was like a new understanding between the humans and the crocodiles. So they would share the fish. The children's, uh, the children, uh, swim with the crocodiles. It even went as far as, um, uh, uh, the crocodiles, they, um, uh, they, they make a nest on the beach and lay their eggs there. And then, uh, at a certain point, the eggs need to go back to the water. And the parents in the, in the human parents in the town would tell their children to help the crocodile with bringing the eggs to the water, uh, when the time was there. So, um, through living together in a non-violent way, these two species, humans and crocodiles gained a new uh, understanding of one another and they probably figure out, well, this is the, the best way to do it. You know, you, you, um, yeah, you live together and then you're, you're sort of safe. And in the other towns, there were accidents, you know, people were killed and they would kill the crocodiles and so on and so on. So, um, there's also, um, uh, a different future possible in terms of relationships between humans and other animals that is, uh, perhaps less violent. Mm. Mm. When humans change their behavior. So uh, another thing that comes to mind, and I don't know if, you know, this is something I've like read a lot about in America. Um, I follow this woman on Instagram called The Kitten Lady, and her name is Hannah, and she's been a guest on Getting Curious before, and she's amazing. And she was really important in um, bringing light to and awareness to and ultimately ended the practice of like these really horrific testing of like stuff on cats um and it's stuff that like you wouldn't even have heard of and it was like these very secret like government like testing things um and so for for things like that where there's just like such um what's it called like just devaluation like of life and just like such cruelty um for people that are moved by that don't or want to be a part of ending those practices have you had any experience with like organizations doing really good work or ways that people can educate themselves more to get more in tune with animal language and try to be more of a force for good well in terms of language i'm actually not sure because i think that's something that's mostly taking place in uh, academia at the moment and that is interesting i think that um within universities philosophy departments um uh, uh all kinds of humanities departments the position of uh, animals and thinking about animals is changing uh, a lot um but i think that what you are hinting at the, the sort of basic cruelty towards animals you don't need language to understand that things are wrong. You don't need, animals do not need to be able to speak in order for us to want to abolish current um, uh, uh, farming practices or um, uh, indeed the, the, the testing on animals that you are talking about. And the interesting thing is also right now that people are beginning to do research on uh, what is sometimes uh, called production animals like cows and chickens and pigs. And it turns out that they do have these very, very rich um, uh, inner lives, they have empathy, um, they make friends, chickens already speak to, uh, their, uh, uh, chicks when they are in the egg. 
And um, uh, they have very complex language. I said that they are they they speak about humans as well. And I think they that do. They do. I mean, I not that I don't believe you because I do totally fucking believe you. But like, how, like I just am so fascinated by how we figured that out. How did they? Because they just like listened, and there was like different noises for different things. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's different noises, but also with different movements and um, different social um, uh, um, events that recur and then they respond in a, in a certain way. It's basically just getting to know someone. But the thing is that because um, humans don't want to, a lot of human culture is just built on animal exploitation. That sounds a bit ugly, but it's true, you know? So it's, um, we don't want to know that stuff. We don't want to know how much they suffer, you know, because it's easier uh, if we don't. And it's so, I mean, for example, big language, we, we know the basics, you know, and we, uh, uh, everybody knows that that they are smart and social and they like to build nests and they they wag their tail when they're happy like dogs and they have these snouts that are really sensitive. Um, uh, but but it's still something that's just it, it's like it's in separate rooms in people's minds, you know, and uh, so I think that's what you are asking is more about translating the things that we already know to society and and speaking about it the way that we are uh doing now and taking seriously these uh uh things and that just demands cultural change and a lot of work from many different organizations and i mean uh i don't know which organizations in the in the us are the best for this but uh, a lot of people are doing good work um and then what animal species has the most similar or like similar or most familiar way of communicating to what a human would seem is familiar? The answer to that question, well, first of all, we don't know eh? because there's so much that we don't know, um, but it's it's interesting. So it turns out that bats, we can't really hear what bats say because their noises are too um, high for our ears to perceive. The frequency is too high. Um, but um, uh, scientists have been using audio recordings and some say that bats are probably the mammals that have the most complex language after humans, whatever that means, right? You know, maybe other languages are way more complex, but that's the way they phrase it from their human point of view. Um, but then there's also, um, there are also all of these animals that can speak in human language and use these words to tell us stuff about their inner lives. For example, um, the gorilla Michael, who um, was speaking in sign language and was uh, telling humans about his childhood when he was when his parents were killed um, uh, and he was taken from his uh, his community and brought into the laboratory. So there's different kinds of similarities with uh, different species. And for example, the, the interaction that you described with your dog companion is uh, another instance of a human and another animal understanding each other quite well, but in a, in a, in a different way. So um, so it's interesting and it sort of also asks the question, um, uh, yeah, how special our human language is, but also what we value most in language. Do we value communication with others or do we value making ourselves clear or do we value the more 
the abstract abstract things like novels and poetry. There are whales who sing love songs that last for 20 hours, but we don't really know what they are singing about, but it's complex, but we don't understand. So it's basically also a question about what you value about uh, language. And it's, there are many, many, many things we don't know yet. So we could be very surprised. So what are your hopes for the future of interspecies communication and of non-human animal rights? Well, I think that as humans, we are now trying to figure out a new kind of relation with the natural world. We are dealing with huge crises like the climate crisis, um, global warming, uh, the corona pandemic, all of these things that, that relate back to our relationship with nature. So we feel a need to reconceptualize ourselves. And I think that comes with uh, developing a different kind of attitude towards the natural world, but also the other animals. And we can learn a lot from them. Some philosophers, for example, say that we should give um, nature reserves to the other animals as property because they would be uh, better able to take care of it. And um, there's there's a lot to learn also about their social relations, um, uh, questions of, of, of morals and normativity and all of that. Um, but that means that we as humans need to begin to listen better to others, which is always very difficult for us, but it's, it's something we need to learn as a species, I think. We need to... Um, perhaps also take a step back because we're always used to going forward, forward, forward. And then we walk into something and grow in it. And we're like, oh, what, what happened now? You know, so we sort of need to begin to pay attention to all of what is going on around us. And that really, really includes um, uh, building new relations with these other animals. But the thing is, I can't tell you as a human how these relationships should look. I mean, of course, I can say we should take a step back and be less violent and, and all of that. But in the end, uh, if I am again formulating what kind of life they want and what kind of things they want from us, I'm actually repeating the idea that we know best as humans. So we need to do this in a dialogue and uh, not simply the dialogues on an individual level as the one that you described with your dog, which is a matter of paying attention from both of you, um, but also on a cultural level. So I'm, I mean, apart from abolishing all of these, these really violent practices like uh, the, the farming practices and uh, vivisection and all of these things, we also um, need to, yeah, begin to to see them differently and listen to them. And I think that, of course, um, and I think that, that, that these, these, um, new ideas about language or thinking about their communication as language is, it can be part of that because that can help us see and, uh, understand what they want, how they perceive the world. And, uh, then we should take it from there. Mm. So what 
Okay, so what about, like, is there ever any, because, I mean, you're a literal philosopher. You're a literal writer. You're a PhD. Honey, you have studied a lot. What's one thing that you just, like, really don't want to hear, like, anyone say anymore? Like, what's something that just grinds your philosopher gears around animal languages? I think it's it's what we began this conversation with. Um, people who say that there's nothing going on in their minds because they don't speak. Both of these things are wrong. They do speak and there's a lot going on in their minds. And our minds are connected to our bodies as well. Eh? So it's the mind-body thing. Ah, it's so true. I feel like what I learned is, or what I'm learning is, is that like, this idea of like interconnectedness and that we we are all interly connected like with each other and that that it's really hard or if not impossible to in reality draw such a boundary around humans do this and non-humans do that um it we are so much more connected and intertwined and to compartmentalize it as something else, while that can seem like your reality, it isn't actually the truth. And I think that, you know, when you talk about climate crisis and the coronavirus pandemic and all, I think really what this is, is like symptoms of us refusing to see the reality of how much more connected we all really are. So it's really, it's really fascinating. And I think that there is so much um, for us to glean from our treatment and historical uh, understanding of human-non-human relations. Yeah, I agree. Um, Well, Ava, uh, also just got (laughs) to say, such congratulations on MIT publishing. I mean, that is like, I went to high school with this girl who um, got a 30, she got a she got 34 on her ACT, and then they accused her of cheating because it was, like, such a perfect score. And then she took it again and did it twice because she's genius. And then she went to MIT, and then she studied, like, chemical engineering. And I was always like, blink once if you're a spy. Because then after that, she, like, started a greeting card company. And oh, I was like, wow. I was like, blink twice if you're a spy. <laughs> and she was like, I, I actually am not. I just work. But she's like the smartest person I've ever met in real life. And MIT, you got published by MIT. So just major congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Van Ness. My guest this week was philosopher and writer Ava Mayer. You'll find links to her work in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thanks so much to her for letting us use it. If you enjoyed our show, introduce a friend, honey, and show them how to subscribe. It's hard out here in these podcast world streets, honey. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at CuriousWithJVN. Our socials are run and curated by Emily Bosick. Our editor is Andrew Carson, who is a total saint because... I mess up a lot. And our transcriptionist, who's also a major saint, is Alita Vunsha. Getting Curious is produced by me, Erica Ghetto, and Emily Bosick. 